3: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's the world's biggest non sports spectacle, the Eurovision Song Contest, and its grand finale is tomorrow. Un <laughs> For the first time, Americans get to vote in the competition for a member country's epic performance of an original song, like an Austrian pop homage to Edgar Allan Poe, Finland's metal rap Cha Cha Cha, or maybe France's Avidamon is more your vibe. We'll go over the favorites with Eurovision expert William Lee Adams, who also had a cameo in the Will Ferrell movie that, for many Americans, put Eurovision on our map. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Whether you've been watching for years or learned about it from the movie Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, it's considered the World Cup of Pop Music, drawing more than 160 million viewers last year. Eurovision gave the world ABBA's Waterloo in 1974, launched Celine Dion in 88, Måneskin in 2021. And for the first time ever, Americans can vote in this year's contest. So with its grand finale tomorrow, William Lee Adams is here to answer all your Eurovision questions. And he has a memoir that just came out called Wild Dances, My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision. Welcome to Forum, William Lee Adams. Hello, thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. And before we get into this year's contest, I really do want to give some background on Eurovision because I will admit the Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams movie really was the first time I'd heard of it. (laughs) And you have a cameo in that movie, too, which is so cool. Um, But for the uninitiated, how would you describe Eurovision? Eurovision?
2: It's a good question. I'd start by saying that it's not a karaoke contest or a cover contest. There are a lot of reality singing shows, and I think people abroad think Eurovision is like that. But in truth, this is a contest with original songs. They've never been released commercially before September 1st of the preceding year, so they're new. Each country chooses an act. That act has the original song. It's three minutes long. And let me tell you, a lot can happen in three minutes. They perform on a stage with outrageous, highly technical, super technicolor extravaganza staging. (laughs) We're talking people dancing in hamster wheels, things exploding, people on fire. And at the end of the night, voters at home, they choose their favorite and they vote The points are tallied for each country. You can't vote for your own country. And then we go around Europe in this kind of magical mystery tour, and an announcer reveals the points, and then we get our winner.
3: Okay, wait a second. You said hamster wheel. So are you saying that the hamster wheel thing was actually based on something real in the Eurovision movie?
2: Oh, yeah. There are two instances of hamster wheels, and both of them come from Ukraine, funny enough. In 2014, the singer Maria Yurumchuk, she sang a song called TikTok about the passage of time and love never ending. So she had a man running in a hamster wheel. And then a few years before that, in 2009, Ukraine sent a singer called Sletlana Laboda, and her song was Be My Valentine. And this was very sensual, and so she had shirtless men dressed as Roman warriors, and she herself got inside the hamster wheel and earned the nickname stripper in a hamster wheel.
3: Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I understand that this competition was established back in 1956. So what was the reason? (laughs) Why was it created? Sure, there were two key
2: reasons. The first is that in 1956, in the aftermath of World War II, Europe was rebuilding itself. Countries were still recovering. They'd been ravaged. Their infrastructure was damaged. And there was lingering mistrust between nations. And so the founder said, why don't we create a forum where people can compete through song, You know, share lyrics about love and loss, and commune over something positive rather than using weapons? So here, the only weapon is the human voice. And the second reason is a technological one. This was a huge experiment in broadcasting the same program across borders, across multiple countries at the same time. And so for the first time, Europeans on a Saturday night were watching the exact same program. And then on Monday morning, when everyone went to work, they were talking about the same program. So it created a cohesion, a cohesiveness for Europe.
3: Mm. Well, Well, William, what role has it played for you in your own life?
2: oh yeah so i should just say if you want to make money becoming a blogger is not the way to do it (laughs) i think there's a great misconception that because i'm sort of the influencer in this niche space that i'm somehow rolling in buckets of money (laughs) that was never my motivation and it's not the truth either uh for me eurovision offered a sort of community a sense of freedom I guess I, I explore this in my book, but growing up, I had a pretty difficult childhood where I felt very isolated from my racist, homophobic father who couldn't accept immigrants, despite the fact my mother is a Vietnamese immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't be free with myself. I couldn't express myself. And so I think when I watched Eurovision, when I first watched it casually in 2007, and I saw people expressing themselves without any censorship, that sense of freedom really spoke to me. And, you know, when I was a kid... In order to deal with the violence in my household, I would read encyclopedias, Aachen, Aardvark, Aardwolf, Albania, Angola, and I would dream of maybe one day going to these places and getting away from where I was and finally feeling free. So as an adult, when I saw Eurovision country after country, you know, these countries jumped from the page to the stage in a whole new way. And so Eurovision became sort of, I don't know, my adult meditation on all the things I had endured when I was young.
3: The title of your memoir is Wild Dances. What does the title mean?
2: Sure. This has a double meaning. I think a lot of Eurovision fans think I'm referring to the 2003 winner, or sorry, the 2004 winner from Ukraine. Uh, That song was called Wild Dances, and the singer was Ruslana. She was from the Carpathian Mountains, and she danced so hard she broke the shatterproof floor. It was a moment. (laughs) Um, But the book is not actually about that. Uh, My brother was severely disabled. He was 51 when he passed away, so he's about 10 years older than me. But mentally, he was 3 years old. During the Vietnam War, he grew ill, lost the use of his limbs, and was mentally incapacitated. So I was taking care of him my entire life. And when I was a kid, about 8 or 9... I would record TV theme tunes, full house, family matters. You know, these were sweet little songs, little ditties that were about families who in in two or three minutes solved all of their problems. And I think I dreamed of one day doing that. And in order to entertain John, because he sat on the floor all day with a plastic urinal between his legs, I would play these theme tunes and I would dance wildly on our fireplace. (laughs) Mm. And... Someone recently said it was a rosebud moment where my childhood ended and my adult life began, but I didn't really view it that way. I viewed it as more just me connecting with him. He couldn't speak, but he would laugh whenever I danced wildly. And uh, yeah, it makes me really sad to think about actually, but the song Wild Dances from Eurovision is so joyous. And when I was working on this book and reflecting back on dancing for my brother, I, I felt that joy and it yeah, the language. It's funny because my mother always said, "Don't dance so wild." And when I heard the song "Wild Dances" decades later, something just clicked.
3: Hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, you've given sort of those incredibly epic and and often over the top performances that, that sometimes get dismissed as you know kitschy or or campy or whatever. It just depends. But you've given them a whole new new meaning. Um, with with that explanation. We're, we're talking with William Lee Adams, a journalist, a Eurovision super fan, an expert, founder of Wee Wee Blogs, the most read Eurovision blog in the world. And we're talking about Eurovision because for the first time Americans get to vote in it. And uh, so just to help us understand if if you're new to Eurovision and want to understand what it is you're watching, we're getting a little bit of the history to begin with. One of the things that you've pointed out, William, is that another powerful thing about Eurovision is that it often brings people who are not necessarily mainstream in their home countries and has the potential to to bring them out on a massive stage. You've talked about 2014's Conchita Wurst from Austria. Wurst, maybe, if I'm saying the last name correctly. Um, But can you tell us why Conchita was so memorable for you? Sure. Um,
2: Conchita Wurst is such an original story. She's an original character. Uh, In real life, the performer is named Tom, but Tom performs as Conchita Wurst. And she's a bearded (laughs) lady uh, who claims to be from a resort town. And when we first spoke in 2012, she was trying to sing for Austria at Eurovision. She entered the national competition. And I asked her, you know, tell me about your name. And at the time, she was very flippant. She said, well, my name's Conchita, and Verst, well, Verst is a sausage, because I've got a surprise. It was very tongue-in-cheek and very silly. But then two years later, in 2014, after Russia had passed a series of draconian anti-LGBT laws, she had a new PR narrative. She suddenly said, My name, Verst comes from a German expression that means it's just sausage to me. We shouldn't care about our differences. Mm. And I could already see the wheels spinning. Um, She released a song, Rise Like a Phoenix, about being burned and persevering. And it really spoke to the plight of LGBT people in Russia, yes, but also all across Europe. And indeed, anyone who had ever felt on the margins. So she goes to the competition People are writing her off. An Armenian contestant that year famously had some transphobic comments. And so she capitalized on that. She said, you know what? I need to speak with him. I need to know that I just want to be happy and free. And what was interesting to me is the first time I saw her and spoke to her, bearded lady i did do a double take but the second or third time you forget there's even a beard and by the fourth or fifth time you prevent it you forget it's a character it's like talking to a friend and i think that simple lesson of when something's different and maybe you feel alienated from it just give it a second chance and over time you realize y'all have so much in common and a beard's just a beard um but she went to the competition and she won she got votes from the Russian public. Uh, there were protests and petitions against her in Belarus. They had said, let's remove this from the TV. But she got points from everywhere. And it was just a powerful statement on how you're at Eurovision, it really is about the voice. And if you can convey an emotion, people will love you.
3: Mm. Well, let's hear some of Conchita Vers in her 2014 performance of Rise Like a Phoenix. I'm going to fly. We're talking about the Eurovision Song Contest, which has its big finale on Saturday, listening to Conchita Verse from 2014. And this listener uh, tweets, my favorite song is Phoenix by Conchita Verst. It broke all kinds of barriers and celebrates the queer community. You are listeners, what is your all-time favorite Eurovision song or favorite act? Are you watching Eurovision 2023? Who are you rooting for? Are you rooting for a home country, perhaps? William Lee Adams has written a book called Wild Dances, My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision. Do you have a journey to Eurovision? Did the Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams movie spark an interest or get you into it? What got you into it? If anything has, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: You don't like the way I'm talking, hey? So you stand there, keep on calling me names. No, I'm not your enemy. So if you're gonna do it, don't do it.
3: <laughs> we are hearing Noah Karel, the song "Unicorn," which is Israel's entry into Eurovision. The European Song Contest was watched by more than 160 million people worldwide last year, and its popularity is growing in the U.S. as well. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And with me is William Lee Adams, a journalist and Eurovision superfan who's here to help break down the different acts this year because Americans can vote in the competition. And William, you are saying that Israel is a front runner in the competition. Why?
2: Yeah, this is among the favorites. And I think it's because it's so different. Uh, the first point of difference is sonically. This has flavor from the Middle East. Israel is consistent with this. They bring a different flavor that we don't hear every day in the UK, France or Italy. The second point is the staging. It it has all these I want to say wackadoodle a doodle moments, you know? Usually a singer ends the performance with a big power note, a big vocal flourish. Instead, the singer Noah Carell, in the final 30 seconds, she asks, you want to see me dance? And then she just dances. She gets on the floor. She's performing high-impact choreography. Uh, visually, there are unicorns everywhere. I've met (laughs) with her a few times here in uh, Liverpool, and she tells me the power of the unicorn is the magic we have inside to make a better life, you know, to run faster, jump higher... And it's also a female empowerment anthem. So that kind of fits. She talks about it's gonna be feminine, feminine, phenomenal, um, <laughs> a fun play on words. You know, I think this song is a real hodgepodge. It sounds like eight different songs in one. This does not have the typical structure of verse chorus, verse chorus bridge end. Um so yeah, they're experimenting here, and I think that will work. Final point on this, this TikTok generation, this Instagram generation, they're used to things changing every 15 seconds because of Instagram. And if you set a timer and listen to this song, you're going to notice that every 15 seconds in the performance, there's either a visual or audible shift. And uh, it's very cleverly done.
3: Oh, gosh. Well, we've got... Calls and comments coming in. Scott tweets, I'm a professor of international relations at SF State IR, and we had a watch party for SFSU students of the second semifinal. We studied the history, politics, and culture of Eurovision. As first-time viewers, they loved it. Great way for people to learn about Europe. So, so let's get into some of the nuts and bolts really fast. How do how do the acts get chosen in most of the countries? Are there national competitions, or are they just sort of appointed by a committee?
2: Sure, it varies year by year and country by country, but there are two routes. The first is through an open selection with the public voting, democracy in action, typically it involves sort of the public voting for 50% of the score and then a jury that provides the other 50%. And usually this is an international jury. I've sat on many of these panels, so I'll represent the UK. And the point there is that domestic audiences may not understand what will do well at Eurovision. They may like an act they're familiar with because they live Mm -hmm. in the same city. So you get foreigners to come in, vote with no bias. Um, Another way to do this, the other way, is through a closed-door internal selection process. And this was what Russia usually did when they participated. Um, A committee works with record labels, chooses an act, you end up saving money because you get to just choose the artist. And you can often get bigger artists because of this because no established artist wants to enter a national contest and lose. So Russia, they would get the Beyonce of Russia, you know, the Adele of Russia. They'd always say yes because it was an honor to be chosen. Uh, So those are the two principal ways.
3: And you don't have to be from the country to perform the act, right? Because Celine Dion performed for Switzerland, right?
2: Absolutely, it's very much a marketplace. Um, For instance, this year, the French singer, she's actually from Canada, (laughs) but she lives in Paris. a country wants to be represented well. And they say it doesn't necessarily matter if they were born here. It's that they can represent our culture. And so the French singer this year sings in French. She's always admired France and she's becoming a naturalized citizen. So, you know, different countries have different takes. Some countries, though, I believe Estonia and Finland in recent years have had citizenship requirements. They're smaller markets and Eurovision is a way to bolster the domestic music industry. And so for them, they're careful. Uh, their safeguards to make sure that local content is represented on the big stage.
3: So it's called Eurovision, but why does Australia get to participate?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So SBS, the public broadcaster in Australia, as part of their charter, they want to represent the multicultural face of their nation. So they made a big play to get in Eurovision to show the world how diverse Australia is, And then the European Broadcasting Union on the other side, their logic is, well, Australia is a nation of European immigrants. Pretty much everyone in Australia has roots in some way or another to Europe. Um, And so there's that big connectivity issue like we are one but also the record labels let's not beat around the bush there's a commercial interest here as well where the record labels in australia want their artists to reach europe because australians feel very european even if geographically they're quite remote they know about these connections to europe and they want to capitalize on them so each year after eurovision you'll typically see the australian artists spending a month going around sweden the uk recording it's a way for them to make contacts and earn that money
3: well, let me go to caller Barry in San Francisco who's with us. Hi Barry, you're on.
0: Hi, Mina.
2: Thanks for taking my call and thanks for having this program. And I wanted to just comment I was born and raised in Ireland and in nineteen seventy an Irish singer called Dana won with a song called All Kinds of Everything. And I think it's significant because in seventy three Ireland joined the EU and then my most memorable memory is of ABBA winning with Waterloo in 1974, but I can literally still remember Dan's song. It was like, all kinds of everything remind me of you, and it was so beautiful because Ireland just was so happy that
0: somebody from our little country had won on an international stage, and I just want to say that. Thanks for having this program. I I love listening to this. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for singing to us, Barry. I love that so much.
1: Thank you, Nina. Yeah, Ireland.
3: Ireland has has done well over the years, even though it's not one of the the nations. Or maybe it is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there are five nations that always go directly to the finals, right, William?
2: Yeah, that's right. So Ireland's not among them. This would be France, Germany. Ger- sorry, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom. And the reason for that is this is a co-production between all 37 participating countries. So all of them have to pay money to broadcast the show. Mm. And then the money is used to help put on the show. Um, And the reason those countries are exempt from the semifinals is they pay the most. They're the Mm. wealthiest. Mm. And you can't very well throw the party, but then not be invited to dinner. (laughs)
3: So that that is the way uh, to maintain the the funds in part, right, by guaranteeing them a spot in the finals. Well, let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about this year's competition, because there is another one that seems to be a favorite with the bookies or so to speak. It's Sweden's entry tattoo. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that one?
2: Oh, this is glorious. This is dark pop dance perfection. The singer Lorene is of Moroccan descent. She told me in an interview that she feels descended from witches because she's so connected to the environment. And when you see her on stage, you get that vibe. She's got these fingernails that are like six to seven inches long. She's got long hair and she wears sort of a beige leather Tomb Raider outfit. She appears on stage on top of a box, and there's a box hanging above her head. So it's sort of like a digital hamburger, and she's the meat cooking inside. And the song, it is just so touching. It's about being in love with the right person at the wrong time and knowing that you can't be together now, but perhaps in the future, you know, they'll come back to you. But for now, they're etched on you like a tattoo. It's just beautiful. And she won Eurovision in 2012. She won the entire contest in a huge mar- by a huge margin. And she's considered a turning point in the history of the contest because her song charted over in 18 countries. Um, I heard it in Abercrombie Fitch in Atlanta. <laughs> (laughs) That's how widespread (gasps) it is. Um, And she's back doing her thing. It really is pop perfection.
3: Well, let's hear it. Here's Tattoo. This is Sweden's submission to Eurovision this year, and you, our listeners, are weighing in with your favorites. This listener writes, I love the Will Ferrell movie and I got into Eurovision through that. This year, I am totally committed to the Austrian entry, Who the Hell is Edgar? It is so random, a pop synth appreciation of Edgar Allan Poe from a bunch of Austrians. To me, this is the ultimate kind of Eurovision entry. Okay, William, talk about this one. (laughs) Yeah, so funny enough,
2: I was on the committee that selected this for Austria. We had about 15 songs to listen to, and this was consistently my favorite throughout the whole Ooh. process. The singers are Selena and Taya, and... And it basically spears the music industry. Uh, The lyrics are all about how ghostwriters, in this case Edgar Allan Poe, can possess a singer who then takes all the money. Songwriters have no rights. Uh, They have a lyric, 0.003, you know, give me a few years and dinner will be free. That's 0.003 is how much artists are paid per stream on Spotify. There's, there are lyrics about, you know, I can afford gas station champagne, but not much else. Um, and the repetition of Poe for Edgar Allan Poe, po Poe, 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 po, is sort of how they're haunted <laughs> by their mistreatment in the music industry. And this we would call a chaos bop. You know, you can move your hips to it it's chaotic you don't know what's going on but you like it and it, the imagery on stage as you'll see is very haunting very fall of the house of usher very you know telltale heart it's got this darkness but because it's so funny it also has a bit of light uh, i think this is going to do very well
3: okay let's hear it
1: you're such a good writer oh it's
0: not me it's edgar who the hell is edgar there's a ghost in my body and he is a
3: that is who the hell is edgar the submission from austria for eurovision 2023 and that's what we're talking about and americans get to vote this year and william we are hearing lots of cool things so how will americans votes be counted
2: yeah so they've introduced something they've called the rest of the world vote so (laughs) Every vote from outside the participating countries will be aggregated into one vote. So the American vote will be included alongside the Brazilian vote, the Argentinian vote, the Vietnamese vote. It all goes together. And funny enough, a lot of Eurovision fans think this will benefit Spain because uh, the connections in Latin America. Music, people say music there connects Latin America in a way it doesn't connect other regions. And so they think, you know, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina will all be throwing love to Spain. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, Andy writes, my favorite Eurovision song is, and this is really going to test my French, Poupe de Sur, Poupe. De song sung by France Gall, written by Sergei Gainsbourg in the 1965 winner for Luxembourg. It's such a fun, uplifting tune. I never get tired of it. It's amazing hearing about all of these songs that people are thinking about as they think about Eurovision, which is amazing in terms of the fact that it is such a well-known worldwide event that the Americans are really only beginning to get into why do you think we have kind of ignored it for so long simply because we don't participate as an act.
2: Yeah, I think things are less fun when you can't participate in them. Um, And and also, the fact is, I think for a while, Europeans, and indeed even today, they want to keep Americans out. There's this sense that the United States is such a cultural hegemon. You know, Mm. when I'm watching the news, we hear about American news. When I turn on the radio, I'm hearing American artists. When I watch Netflix, I'm watching American shows. And so Eurovision has always been seen as sort of a private jewel box for Europeans to look at their rubies and their pearls. And so in some ways, I think it was deliberate. For many years, YouTube videos of the performances were blocked in the United States. I don't know if that's still the case, but Americans couldn't even watch them because of rights issues. But it seemed that the European Broadcasting Union is now moving toward expanding the franchise. And with that, they're trying to be a little sweeter to the Americans.
3: So politics countries, politics, within country, and even between countries, they can play a role in both the voting and also in the types of songs that are sung. And I guess one of the ones that I'm thinking about is the Croatian entry. Um, I think the performance features this punk band that's dressed as like these Stalin-like dictators. And then there's this reference to tractors in the song, and it refers back to the Belarusian president who once gave Putin a tractor as a birthday gift and as a commentary on that nation's support of Russia against Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about, well, first this performance, because it is so intense and this song has been described <laughs> it, with lots of with lots of interesting adjectives, but also the the way that artists will use this opportunity to send political messages, even though it's supposed to be sort of an apolitical event in, in an ideal way.
2: Sure. So, speaking of Croatia in particular, uh, the song is Mama Sh. And in this song, you have men with dictatorial mustaches, we'll say, wearing dresses that appear to be splattered in blood. Um, mm-hmm. On the LED screen behind them, they have militaristically styled women twerking. It's very much circus colors, red, white, bright. And the lyrics very clearly discuss Russia using Belarus as a staging ground for its invasion of Ukraine. As you mentioned uh, Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus he's often called Europe's last dictator he gave Vladimir Putin of Russia a tractor for his 70th birthday last year and so the lyrics say things like mama kissed an idiot mama loves a psychopath mama bought a tractor and now I'm off to war this is about dictators and leaders using geopolitics and the world stage as their playground Um, during the song a man walks out with two missiles and the word linen is written on his forehead back backwards in the Croatian language. And this man, he's the one with his weapons threatening Armageddon. And so the lyrics even say, Armageddon Nona. Um, So it's very clearly provocative. And this group, Let Three, they've had decades of provocation (laughs) under their belt. They famously toured the country with a statue of a grandmother with a mustache and a one-meter phallus. They're here to provoke. (laughs) There's no ambiguity. and I'd say in terms of politics at Eurovision more generally, the fact is art is created to reflect the times, and this includes pop culture. If you're an artist and you're making music, you can't avoid what's in the air, the social change, the politics on the news, and that creeps in, sometimes by accident, but other times deliberately and explicitly, into the songs. I think with this instance, it's very explicit. Uh, we could talk about endless examples of this.
3: Yes, yes, there are so many examples. Again, we're talking with William Lee Adams, a journalist, Eurovision superfan, founder of Wee Wee Blogs. You can get his insights there. It's the most read Eurovision blog in the world. Adams is a Harvard grad and a senior journalist for the BBC World Service and the author of a new memoir, Wild Dances, My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision. A lot of those experiences, his hardships growing up and how he got as far as he did is documented in that book. And we're we're hearing what Eurovision means to you, listeners. Um, we're hearing what's been your favorite performance, a memorable performance, whether you're watching Eurovision 2023 and who you're rooting for. And if you have a journey to Eurovision as well, like William, maybe the film by Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams sparked it. 866 733 is... The number to call with your questions or comments, you can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just before the break, we were talking about the Croatian entry, the political song, "Mamush," and let's hear it now.
1: Mama, ljubila morona. Mama, morona.
3: I'm with journalist William Lee Adams. We're talking about Eurovision 2023 and Eurovision's past, and you, our listeners, are sharing what you remember or what you're excited about for this year by emailing forum at kqed.org finding us on twitter facebook or instagram at kqed forum calling us at 866-733-6786 and jamie writes my sister's husband is from northern ireland and they got us hooked on eurovision we watched it with my kids last year and they have been playing dedita it's by s10 and "Slowmo" mo by chanel on repeat this past year Another listener writes, oh, my God, Eurovision, the original train wreck television. (laughs) Another listener tweets, it's my first year attending and voting. I've been following the contest since 2006, so it's weirdly fitting that my first vote is going to Finland. Cha-cha-cha has been in my playlist for months, and I can't overstate how much it's been energizing crowds here all week. Ooh, cha-cha-cha. Tell us about that one.
2: Oh, yeah. Curiously, I was on the committee in Finland that chose this song as well. I absolutely love it. You've got the Finnish rapper, Garia, and he starts the song on top of a crate. He's feeling caged. He's feeling trapped. He wears a green bolero that exposes his pectorals and his stomach, and he's got spikes coming out of him. He's angry, aggressive. He sings. He doesn't like the noise. He doesn't want to be in the crowd. But then he has a piña colada. And when this really rough, aggressive man has this sweet drink, he suddenly loosens up. From the crate emerges flamenco dancers in pink. This is his spirit. This is emancipation. They dance playfully. He's joyous. And suddenly he's singing (laughs) cha-cha-cha. This is all about that journey.
3: All right, let's hear it. Classic to me in a way of what I think about when I think about the uh, like heavy metal that you always get in terms of the acts at, at Eurovision. And I think this was described as like some kind of uh, anarcho-punk kind of thing. But um, but anyway, I am, I am dying. I'm loving this so much. I, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about was nations have stereotypes. So when there are performances, do they play up that stereotype or does that play a role in people's enjoyment of the song itself or its ability to win or even going up against it but being really obvious about going up against it yeah
2: it's really interesting and there's no formula to win eurovision it's much more of an art and it's about capturing the moment. But in terms of stereotypes, I'd say the viewer and commentators, what we find funny is often when acts don't align with national stereotypes. So, a classic example is in 2007, the British commentator Terry Wogan, he was introducing Russia, and he said, in my day, uh, Russian women all looked like Khrushchev and had a mustache. And then the act, they were these beautiful, glorious women, you know, stereotypically sexy. It was the exact opposite of what he had Discussed. And that mismatch between, you know, stereotype, quite rude stereotype, and reality was where the humor came from. Um, But yeah, I think tradition, playing up to tradition can help artists. Serbia does this a lot. They often have traditional instruments and flutes. Albania this year, traditional beats and dance. And, um, yeah, Portugal. For instance, in twenty eight, twenty seventeen, Portugal won in a landslide with a very Portuguese song. It was Portuguese jazz, so beautiful. And it didn't win because of stereotype. It won because it was authentic. And you see that this, this year with Spain. Spanish flamenco, singing about the moon, life and death, you know, staying safe at night. This woman finding her way home through lullaby. It's really beautiful. Mm.
3: Yeah. Can I ask you why the UK almost never wins or why there's this joke around how the UK will never get points? So I think last year was the exception. But what's that all about?
2: So this is part of a vicious cycle. And it goes back to Terry Wogan, who I was just talking about. He did the commentary on the BBC. So for viewers watching in the United Kingdom, and he was very snarky. Um, In the 1990s, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of Yugoslavia, all these new countries flooded the contest. And they were ambitious, they wanted to win, and they just went for it. Swedish and Norwegian producers have told me that during this period, they were just sitting back saying, what's going on? These countries are so spicy, they have so much flavor, and they're taking over. And so traditional powerhouses like the UK were suddenly losing. And so what happened is... Terry Wogan and others made negative comments, the people repeated those negative comments, and then the tabloid press wants to appease those people, so it reports those comments, and it becomes this really vicious cycle. At the same time, to be quite honest, the BBC wasn't choosing good acts, and so when all of that aligns, it's this endless cycle of negativity. Um the first year I watched Eurovision, I was like, OK, the United Kingdom, musical powerhouse exports all this pop music, you know, the Beatles, etc. That year, they sent an act dressed as flight attendants asking the audience if they wanted salty nuts and that they needed told them they needed to remember to blow their flotation devices. <laughs> this was not music. Th- th- this was a joke. Mm.
3: So tell me then why they are hosting this year, why it's in Liverpool this year if they didn't win, because typically the nation that wins gets the uh gets the honor i guess and we can talk about whether or not it is much of an honor to host eurovision the following year but but the uk came in second and is hosting just explain to our listeners why
2: Sure. So last year, following a ground well of support for Ukraine after Russia's invasion, Ukraine won in a landslide. Uh, They wanted to host this edition of Eurovision, but unfortunately, with the ongoing war, it's simply impossible. And so the United Kingdom, by coming second, they were offered the right to host. And the BBC agreed. Um, This is much more about just throwing a party. This is about honoring Ukraine. And we see this all over the streets of Liverpool. They're yellow and blue birds that have been uh, erected as statues there's yellow and blue trash cans you see the ukrainian flag everywhere uh, in bakeries they're serving traditional ukrainian peace pies you you go to bakeries and you get cupcakes in yellow and blue it's just so touching oh, wow. and you know the fact is liverpool is partnered with odessa this is a long standing relationship and there are many many Ukrainian refugees who live in this city um i actually as part of my blog we have a broadcast space and on the walls a Ukrainian photographer has installed photographs of queer people who are still living during the war in Ukraine so you see a sniper who fights by day but at night he's still going out dancing when he can <laughs> and it's just it's all about the resilience so the united kingdom could have passed the buck to the next country, but there was this sense of, let's show we're united. The slogan this year is United by Music. Now, Eurovision's apolitical, but you have to ask yourself, united against what? And I think we all know the answer to that. This is a subtle way to nod to Russia, to nod to the war. If you look at the logo this year, it's a million hearts, a series of infinite hearts, and they each beat. And the idea I'm taking from that is each beating heart connects with the next. And at Eurovision, it's a way to sort of strengthen that movement, strengthen that the passing of those feelings. And conveniently, it also looks like a sound wave, which is a nice touch.
3: And it's nice. Well, let's hear this year's entry, Heart of Steel, from Ukraine. But I'm wondering if you want to say anything about it first.
2: Sure. I'd point out that the term heart of steel is very much a play on words. Um, famously, the defender, defenders in Ukraine withheld a Russian onslaught of a steel factory for a month. And this became a huge talking point in Ukraine, a way to ra- rouse national belief in themselves. Um, they really came together supporting these defenders. And the song Heart of Steel, then, which is about perseverance, nods to them, but it also says, just keep going, things will be Okay.
3: And here's Ukraine's Heart of Steel. i
1: get in my hairlike When I turn in my headlights, I can see right through you Trying to get a reaction I just hit the action move I'm you going to be I'm going to be I'm going i Don't be scared to say just what you think Matter how bad someone's listening. Don't get what you say, yeah. yeah. Don't get how you feel. Get out of my way, yeah. yeah. And
3: that is from the duo Borchi in Ukraine, and we're talking with. William Lee Adams about Eurovision and Kathy writes, I have a younger sister who is developmentally disabled. She loved upbeat music, especially Tony Orlando and Dawn. We took her to Reno to see his show. He called us backstage to his dressing room after the show. He spent time focusing on my sister and also told us that he used to sing and dance for his disabled younger sister. And that's how he got started as an entertainer. Um, This is is something that reminds me of your book, William.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that really resonates. Wow. That's incredible.
3: And uh, another listener writes, Can you talk about the Norwegian act, Queen of Kings? I love that song and wanted to know if it has a chance of winning.
2: Oh, that's a great question. I was literally just discussing this with Norwegian journalists who are very nervous. Uh, (laughs) This song, it actually hit number one on the global viral Spotify chart when it was released back in January. Uh, But it sort of slipped down the odds table recently. It's very much Game of Thrones on the dance floor. The singer dresses like a queen in a green corset-esque outfit. It's got a sea shanty vibe and it's all about what's her name? She... Queen of the Kings, women standing up for themselves, women slaying the dance floor and life. It, it's really good. It's also got a Norwegian forest fantasy vibe. When you hear it, it has this fairy tale element to it. But her vocals here in Liverpool haven't been the best. I think she's really stretching herself vocally. And I can understand that because she's shaking her hip so hard, I worry they might break. Um, But in rehearsal this afternoon, she was pulling it together. The jury show is in an hour tonight. And so I'm hoping tonight she can deliver vocally because the jury really, really cares about that. She's performing 20th in the running order and curiously most of the favorites like Finland, Spain and Sweden they're in the first half but she's in the second half 20th and typically you know acts that go later are more remembered when voting comes around.
3: Well we're wishing you luck listener let's hear a little bit of it. <laughs> We are talking about Eurovision on the eve of the grand finale because Americans get to vote in it. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What do you get if you win? What does the winning act get? What does the country get, William?
2: Crystal microphone shaped like a trophy. It doesn't go to the performer, though. It goes to the songwriter because it's called the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes, yes. And it's up to the artist to make the most of it. The fact is some artists like Lorene, who won for Sweden in 2012, she has a great music career. Um, If you're from a small country like Moldova, you may not say you don't even win. The fact is, your local music industry cannot support a career, the the country is just too small. So for them, the victory of just participating is that they'll forever be invited to perform at weddings, in local TV shows, and it allows them to live from their art. Uh, I think success is not just global superstardom. Certainly Celine Dion and ABBA, they did achieve that, this was an important stepping stone. We could point to Monaskin more recently. But it's not just about that. It's about being able to live off your art. And so say you come fifth, but for the rest of your life, you know, you're going to be able to support yourself. That's a huge win.
3: Is there an, a lesser known uh, songwriter or performer who you think will really get a bump from being in this competition that you want to highlight now and say, say, I saw, I knew this was going to happen?
2: <laughs> <laughs> hmm, that's a really good question. and. Ooh, you know, I want to say that the Armenian singer Brunette is really going to be someone in her region. I don't think she's going to go global per se, but the fact is Armenia, they they treat this competition like a blood sport. It means so much to them. And I remember I went to Yerevan to appear on their national selection a few years ago, and a Eurovision singer from several years before was the face on every ATM. So when I was getting my money, it was coming out of her (laughs) mouth. It was really bizarre. But those kinds of opportunities will be presented to Brunette. Um, She's got a great song about surviving panic attacks and she says, you've got to do good, you've got to be good, and you've got to look good. Those are words to live by. (laughs)
3: So this sister wants to know, how accurate was the Will Ferrell movie? It felt like a Valentine to Eurovision and not a mean-spirited parody. I do love that song, Volcano Man. Oh, my God, that was such a crazy song. But, yeah, talk about that movie, because you played a cameo role in it. And I imagine with something that you love so much, being introduced in a lot of ways to a lot of Americans, potentially, that it, I don't know, did it make you nervous about how it would be portrayed Oh, I think they should have been
2: snarkier, to be honest. I think they should have gone (laughs) in harder because it really, it was very respectful. And this is actually in my book, the backstory to this, but Will Ferrell um, and I had a long chat when he was researching the movie. And I told him about an eccentric Russian man who's a singer, who's very wealthy, and who's a bit of a villain to a lot of people. And so that became the basis of the character in the movie, the man who sings Lion of Love. And I also talked to him about how (laughs) small countries don't want to win because it costs too much. And so that became the Icelandic plot point. (laughs) And there are a few other things like that. You can read about it in my book, but it is true to life. It's very much inspired by real events. Um, And, you know, all those performers, I can tell you I've met people exactly like that. But in real life, they're often even more over the top.
3: Oh, my gosh. Well, that is so cool that you helped create those elements of the film. And I have to recommend your book again, Wild Dances, My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision, because you do give some really great background on it. You want to say anything about having that cameo? And where we can find you for people who may not know.
2: Right. So I'm in the commentary booth when Graham Norton's commentating. It's the, I think it's the semifinals. And they show a clip of Finland and San Marino. And then I'm in the booth and I say, our girl is killing it. Call the police. Um, (laughs) It's a little tongue in cheek. Um, We filmed for another day, but sadly that scene got cut because we were much snarkier. And I don't think it fit with the positive tone of the movie.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we are actually going to go out hearing a song from the UK. Uh, this is uh, May Muller, if I'm saying May's name correctly, called I Wrote a Song. And just wondering if you can set that up for us and just talk about how, how really it is all about music and song, isn't it? That, that Eurovision is about the fact that it has so much power to bring people together, even nations together.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The fact is, there are very few places you can go where you're going to have in one room at the same time British people, Croats, Slovenes, Israelis, Lithuanians, Germans, Norwegians, Ukrainians, Moldovans, all enjoying the same thing, dancing together in a crowd. This song is actually the last song you'll see on Saturday night, so it's the perfect closer to our chat. May Muller talks about being done wrong by a man. She wanted to burn down his house, slash the tires on his car. But instead, she took a breath and she wrote a song, and now she's performing that song. On stage, you'll literally see her dancing in her own head. They project her head on the screen, and she's on a platform when her brain splits. Um, So there are a lot of levels to read here. Uh, It's really touching, and I hope it'll inspire people to deal with their pain in positive ways, too.
3: Yes, take a break, everybody, and have an amazing weekend. William Lee Adams, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, check out Williams' book "Wild Dances: My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision" and watch Eurovision it's streaming on Peacock this weekend. And check out his blog, Wee, Wee Blogs. I also want to thank Grace Swan for producing today's segment, for our forum team: Susie Britton, Caroline Smith, Marlena jackson rotondo Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, Christopher Beal, Jericho Reininger, Lulu Ralda, Ethan Tobin, Lindsey, and Holly Kernan. And to let you listeners know, that I'll be just taking a break from the host chair for a couple of months. I'll be back. July 10th, but you are in good hands with this awesome team. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend.
1: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.